Chapter 9 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 9 It was nearly midnight when Parago returned to our inn on the outskirts of the town. He reeled up to the doorstep where I sat in the moonlight awaiting his return. Why aren't you in bed? It was too hot and I couldn't sleep, Master, said I. As a matter of fact, I had been dismally failing to compose a poem on Joanna after the style of Maitre François Villon. Just as youthful dramatists begin with a five-act tragedy, so do youthful poets begin with a double ballade. In order to eke out the slender stock of rhymes to Joanna, I had to drag in Indiana, which somehow didn't fit. I remember also that she showered her favours like manner, which was not very original. Parago seated himself heavily by my side. "'The moon has a baleful influence, my son,' said he, in a thick voice. "'And you'll come under it if you sit too long beneath its effulgence. That's what has happened to me. It makes one talk unmentionable imbecility.' He just missed concertini-ing the last two words, and looked at me with an air of solemn triumph. "'It isn't the man in the moon's fault, my Elastico,' he continued. I've been having a very interesting conversation with him. He is a most polite fellow. He said if I would go up and join him, he would make room for me. It's all a lie, you know, about his having been sent there for gathering sticks on a Sunday. He went out of his own accord, because it was the only place where he could be four thousand miles away from any woman. Think of it, Elastico of my heart. There are lots of lies told about the moon, he says. He looks down on the earth and sees all of us little worms wriggling in and out and over one another and thinking ourselves so important, and he cracks his sides with laughing. And your bald-headed idiots with spy-glasses take the cracks from mountain ranges and volcanoes. I'm going to live in the moon, away from female, feminine women, and if you are good, my son, you shall come too. I explained to him as delicately as I could, that I should regard such a change rather as a punishment than as a reward. He broke into a laugh. You, too, with the milk of the feeding bottle still wet on your lips? The trail of the petticoats over us all. What has been putting the sex feminine into your little turnip head? Have you fallen in love with Blanquette? No, master, said I. When I fall in love, it will be with a very beautiful lady. Parago pointed upwards. I see another crack in my friend's sides. We all fall in love with beautiful ladies, my poor Astico, one after the other, plunging into destruction with the comic sheep-headedness of the muttons of Panurge. Another woolly one over. Ho, oh, oh, ho, laughs the man in the moon, and crack go his sides. The door opened behind us, and the proprietor of the auberge appeared on the threshold. Give me half a litre of red wine, Monsieur Bonivard, cried Parigot. I am the descendant of Maître Jean Catard, whose throat was so dry that in this world he was never known to spit. Bien, monsieur, said the patron. Parago filled his porcelain pipe and lit it with clumsy fingers, and did not speak until his wine was brought. My son, we are leaving Aix the first thing in the morning. I started up in alarm. We have not finished our engagement at the restaurant du Lac. I care no more for the restaurant du Lac than for the rest of the idiot universe, he declared. But Blanquette, it would break her heart. All women's hearts can be mended for tuppence. And men's? They have to go about with them broken, my son, and the pieces clank and jangle and chink and jingle inside like a crate of broken crockery. 
We leave eggs tomorrow. But, Master, I cried, there is no necessity. What do you mean? She's leaving eggs herself tomorrow. She? he shouted, quite sober for the moment. Who the devil do you mean by she? I upbraided myself for a vain idiot. Here was I on the point of breaking my oath sworn on Johanna's hand. I felt ashamed and frightened. He grasped my shoulders roughly. Who do you mean by she? Tell me. The Lady of the Lake, Mr. Master, said I. He looked at me for a moment keenly, then relaxed his grip and shrugged his shoulders with the ghost of a laugh. If you see holes in ladders in this perspicacious fashion, you'll have to forsake the paths of art for the higher walks of the prefecture of police. He puffed silently at his pipe for a few moments, and then, turning his head away, asked me in a low voice, How can you know that she is leaving tomorrow? I lied for the first time to Parago. I overheard her say so while I was waiting with the tambourine. Sure? Quite sure. This seemed to satisfy him to my great relief. How my poor little oath would have fared under cross-examination, I don't know. At any rate, honour was saved. Arago laid aside his pipe and looked wistfully into the past over his wine bowl. The Lady of the Lake, he murmured. I've called her many things, good and bad, in my time, but never that. You are a genius, my little Astico. He finished his wine slowly, holding the bowl in both hands. The moon smiled at us in a friendly way, sailing high over the mountains. There entered my head the novel reflection that he was smiling on all men alike, the good and the bad, the just and the unjust. He was smiling just the same on Joanna's beaky-nosed husband. A husband? Something caught at my heart. Did Parago know? I debated anxiously in my mind whether I should impart the disastrous information. If he knew that she was a married woman, he would put foolish thoughts out of his head, for it was only in Merovingian and such-like romantic epochs that men loved other men's wives. I touched him timidly on the arm. Master, I overheard something else. Did you? She is married, and that is her husband. Did he take off his hat? No, Master. He is a scaly-headed vulture, said Parago dreamily. He only gave me five sous, said I, relieved and yet disappointed at finding that my disclosure produced no agitation. Parago fumbled in his pocket. We will not batten on his charity, said he, and he cast three or four coppers into the silent street. They crashed, rolled, and fell over with little chinks. Narcisse, who had hitherto been asleep, trotted out and sniffed at them. Parago laughed, then checked himself, and, holding up a long-nailed forefinger, looked at me with an air of awful solemnity. Listen to the wisdom of Parago. There is not a woman worth a clean man that does not marry a scaly-headed vulture. He murmured an incoherence or two, and there was a long silence. Presently his head knocked sharply against the lintel. I roused him. Master, it won't be good for us to sit any longer in the moonshine. He turned a glazed look on me. Minerva's owl, said he, I am quite aware of it. He rose and lumbered into the inn and I, having guided him up the narrow staircase to his room, descended to my bunk in a corner of the tiny salon. My sleeping arrangements were always sketchy. In the morning, when I questioned him as to our departure from Aix, 
He affected not to understand, and told me that I had been dreaming, and that the moonshine had affected my brain. Consider, my son, said he, that when I returned last night, I found you fast asleep on the doorstep, and you never woke up till this morning. From this, I gathered that for the second time, he had dosed the book of his life to my prying, though innocent eyes. I also learned the peculiar difference between Philip drunk and Philip sober. When our engagement at Aix was at an end, the proprietor of the restaurant desired to renew it, but Parago declined. The sick violinist whom he had replaced had recovered, and Parago had seen him on the quay looking through the railings with the hungry eyes of a sort of musical Enoch Arden. Blanquette had some little difficulty in preventing him from rushing out there and then and delivering his fiddle into the other's hands. It was necessary to be reasonable, she said. On the dew, he cried. If I were reasonable, I should be lost. Reason would set me down in Paris with gloves and an umbrella. Reason would implant a sunny smile on my face above the red ribbon of the Legion of Honour. It would marry me to the daughter of one of my confrères at the Académie des Beaux-Arts. It would make me procreate my species, nom de Dieu. It would make me send you and Astico and Narcisse to the devil. If I were reasonable, I should not be Parago. The man who lives according to reason has the heart of a sewing machine. But out of regard for Blanquette, he served his time faithfully at the restaurant du Lac, and reconciled his conscience with reason by giving the hungry violinist his own share of the takings. It was only when Blanquette suggested the further exploitation of Aix that he showed his Gascon obduracy. If there was one place in the world where the soul sickened and festered, it was Aix-les-Bains. Mammon was king thereof, and Astarte queen. He was going to fiddle no more for sons of Belial and daughters of Ahola. He had set out to travel to the heart of truth, and the way thither did not lead through the inner shrine of Dagon and Astaroth. Blanquette did not in the least know what he was talking about, and I only had a vague glimmer of his meaning. But I see now that his sensitive nature chafed at the false position. Among the simple village folk he was of personality, compelling awe and admiration. Among the idlers of Aix, whom in his loftiness he despised, he was but the fiddling mountebank to whom any greasy wallower in riches could cast a disdainful franc. So, once more, we took to the high road, and Parago threw off the depressing burden of Memon, Joanna, and became his irresponsible self again. I have but confused memories of our fantastic journeyings. Stretches of long white road and blazing sun, laughing valleys and cornfields and white farmsteads among the trees. Now and then a village fete or wedding at which we played to the enthusiasm of the sober-vested peasantry. Nights passed in barns, deserted byres, on the floor of cottages and infinitesimal cafes. Hours of idleness by the wayside after the midday meal, when the four of us sat round the fare provided by Blanquette, black bread, cheese, charcuterie, and the eternal bottle of thin wine. It was rough, but there was plenty. Parago saw to that, in spite of Blanquette's economical endeavours. Sometimes he would sleep while she and I chatted in low voices so as not to wake him. She told me of her wanderings with the old man, the hardness of her former life. Often she had cried herself to sleep for hunger, shivering in wet rags the long night through. Now it was all changed. She ate too much and was getting as fat as a pig. Did I not think so? Voila! In her artless way, she guided my finger into her waistband, and then swelled herself out, 
like the frog in the fable to prove the increase in her girth. She spoke in awestruck whispers of the master himself. Save that he was utterly kind, impulsive, generous, boastful, and, according to her untrained ear, a violinist of the first quality, she knew not what manner of man he was. She had enough imagination to feel vaguely that he had dropped from vast spaces into her narrow world. But he was a mystery. Once, the previous summer, as she was resting by the roadside with the old man, even as we were doing then, an amiable person, she told me, with easel and stool and paint-box, came along and requested their permission to make an oil sketch of them. While he painted, he conversed, telling them of Sicily, whither he was going, and of Paris, whence he came. In a dim way she associated him with Parago. The two had the same trick of voice and manner, and held unusual views as to the value of five francs. But the amiable painter had been a gentleman, elegantly dressed, such as he saw in the large towns driving in cabs and consuming drinks in expensive cafes, whereas the master was attired like a peasant and slept in barns and did everything that the elegantly dressed gentlemen in cafes did not do. At all events, she was penetrated with the consciousness of a loftier mind and spirit, and she contented herself, even as I did, with being his devoted slave. Often, too, she spoke of her own ambitions. If she were rich, she would have a little house of her own. Perhaps for company she would like someone to stay with her. She would keep it so clean and would mend all the linen and do the cooking and, save to go to market, would never leave it from one year's end to the other. A good sleek cat to curl up by the fireside would complete her felicity. A blanquette, I would cry. The sun and the stars and the high road and the smell of spring and the fields and the freedom of this life? You would miss them. J'aime le manage, moi, she would reply, shaking her head. Of all persons I have ever met, the least imbued with the vagabond instinct was the professional vagabond Blanquette de Vaux. Sometimes, instead of sleeping, Parigo would talk to us from the curious store of his learning, always bent on my education, and desirous, too, to improving the mind of Blanquette. Sometimes it was Blanquette who slept, Narcisse huddled up against her, while Parigo and I read our tattered books, or sketched or discussed the theme which I had written overnight as my evening task. It was an odd school, but though I could have passed any examination held by the sons of men, I verily believed I had a wider culture, in the truest sense of the world, than most youths of my age. I craved it, it is true, and I drank from an inexhaustible source. But few men have the power of directing that source so as to supply the soul's need of a boy of sixteen. Well, well. I suppose Allah Parago is great, and Mohammed Astico is his prophet. We wandered and fiddled and zithered and tambourined through France, till the chills and rains of autumn rendered our vagabondage less merry. The end of October found us fulfilling a week's engagement at a brasserie on the outskirts of Tours. Two rooms over a stable and a manger in an empty stall below were assigned to us, and every night we crept to our resting places wearied to death by the evening's work. I have always found performance on a musical instrument exhausting in itself. The tambourine, for instance, calls for considerable physical energy. But when the instrument, tambourine, violin, or zither, is practised for several hours in a little stuffy room filled with three or four dozen obviously unwashed humans, 
reeking with bad tobacco and worse absinthe, and pervaded by the ghosts of inferior meals, it becomes more penitential than the treadmill. A dog's life, said Parago, whereat Narcisse sniffed. It was not at all the life for a philosopher's dog, said he. On the morning of the last day of our engagement, Blanquette entered Parago's bedchamber as usual, with the bowls of coffee and hunks of coarse bread that formed our early meal. I had risen from my manger and crept into Parago's room for warmth. While he slept, I sat on the floor by the window, reading a book. As for Blanquette, she had dressed and eaten long before, and had helped the servant at the café to sweep and wash the tables and make the coffee for the household. It was not in her peasant nature to be abed, which, now I come to think of it, must be a characteristic of the artistic temperament. Parago loved it. He only woke when Blanquette brought him his coffee. Ordinarily, he would remonstrate with picturesque oaths at being aroused from his slumbers, and, having taken the coffee from her hands, would dismiss her with a laugh. He observed the most rigid propriety in his relations with Blanquette. This morning, he directed her to remain. Sit down, my child, I have to speak to you. As there was no chair or stool in the uncomfortable room, it had lean-to walls and bare dirty boards, and contained only the bed and a table. She sat obediently at the foot of the bed next to Narcisse, and folded her hands in her lap. Parago broke his bread into his coffee, and fed himself with the sops by means of a battered tablespoon. When he had swallowed two or three mouthfuls, he addressed her. My good Blanquette, I have been wandering through the world for many years in search of the springs of life. I do not find them by scraping catgut in the Café Brasserie du Bois. It would be better to go to Orléans, said Blanquette. We were at the Café de la Couronne there last winter, and I danced. Not even your dancing at the Orléans could help me in my quest, said he. I don't understand, murmured Blanquette, looking at him helplessly. Have the kindness, said he, pointing to the table, to smash that confounded violin into a thousand pieces. Mon Dieu, what is the matter? cried Blanquette. It does not please me. I know it is not a good one, said Blanquette. We will save money until we can buy a better. I would execrate it were it a Stradivarius, said he, his mouth full of sop. Astico, he called, don't you loathe your tambourine? Yes, master, I replied from the floor. Do you love playing the zither? But no, maître, said Blanquette. Why then, said my master, should we pursue a career which was equally abominable to the three of us? We are not slaves, nom d'un chien. We must work, said Blanquette, or what would become of us? Parago finished his coffee and bread, and handed the bowl to Blanquette, who nursed it in her lap, while he settled himself smug beneath the bedclothes. The autumn rain beat against the dirty little windows, and the wind howled through chinks and crevices, filling the room with cold, damp air. I drew the old blanket which I brought from my manger bed close round my shoulders. Blanquette, with her presence indifference to change of temperature, sat unconcerned in her thin cotton dress. But what will become of us? she repeated. I shall continue to exist, said he. But I, what shall I do? You can fill my porcelain pipe and let me think, replied Parago. She rose in her calm, obedient way and, having carried out his orders, reseated herself at the foot of the bed. "'You are the most patient creature alive,' said he. 
Otherwise you would not be contented to go on playing the zither, which is not a very exhilarating instrument, my little blanquette. I am not patient, and I am not going to play the violin again for a million years after tonight, and the violin is superior to the zither. Blanquette regarded him uncomprehending. If I were a king, I would live in a palace, and you should be my housekeeper. But, as I am a ragged vagabond, too idle to work, I am puzzled as to the disposal of you. She grew very white and rose to her feet. I understand. You are driving me away. If it is your desire, I will earn my living alone. Je ne vous serai pas du sur le dos. For all her vulgar asseveration that she would not be on his back, her manner held a dignity which touched him. He held out his hand. But I don't drive you away, little idiot, he laughed. On the contrary, you are like Astico and Narcisse. You belong to me. But Astico is going to learn how to become an artist, and Narcisse, when he is bored, can hunt for fleas. You are a young woman. Things must arrange themselves differently. But how? Voilà tout. It is very simple, said Blanquette. How simple? Damn, I can work for you, Anastico. The devil, cried Parigo. But yes, she went on earnestly, I know that men are men, and sometimes they do not like to work. It happens very often. Dear Momitra, I am alone, all that is most alone. You are the only friends I have in the world, you and Astico. You have been kinder to me than anyone I have ever met. I put you in my prayers every night. It is a very little thing that I should work for you, if it fatigues you to scrape the fiddle in these holes of cabaret. It is true, true as the bon Dieu. I would tear myself into four pieces for you. Je suis brave, fille, and I can work. But no she cried, looking deep into his eyes. You can't refuse. It is not possible. Yes, I refuse, said Padigo. He turned on his side, face on palm, elbow on pillow, had regarded her sternly as she spoke. I saw that he was very angry. For what do you take me, little imbecile? Do you know that you insult me? I, to be supported by a woman? Nom de Dieu de Dieu! His ire blazed up suddenly. He cursed, scolded, boasted, all in a breath. Blanquette looked at him, terrified. She could not understand. Great tears rolled down her cheeks. But I have made you angry, she wailed. The scornful spurning of her devotion hurt her less than the sense of having caused his wrath. The primitive, savage feminine is not complicated by over-subtlety of feeling. As soon as she could speak, she broke into repentant protestation. She had not meant to anger him. She had spoken from her heart. She was so ignorant. She would tear herself into four pieces for him. She was brave, fille. She was alone, and he was her only friend. He must forgive her. I, feeling monstrously tearful, jumped to my feet. Yes, master, forgive her. He burst out laughing. Oh, what three beautiful fools we are. Blanquette, to think of supporting two hulking men. I, to be angry and as to go to plead tragically as if I were a tyrant about to cut off her head. My little Blanquette, you have touched my heart, and who touches the heart of Parigo can eat Parigo's legs and liver if he is hungry, and drink his blood if he is thirsty. I will remember it all my life, and if you will bring me my déjeuner, I will stay in bed till this afternoon. Then I am not to leave you? she asked, somewhat bewildered. Good heavens, no, he cried. Because I am sick of fiddling, do you suppose I am going to send you adrift? We shall settle down for the winter. Some capital. 
Which one would you like us to go? Budapest, said I at random. Very well, said Perigo. The day after tomorrow we start for Budapest. Now, let me go to sleep. It took exactly two months getting to Budapest. The only incident of our journey, which I clearly remember, is a week's sojourn at the farm of La Haye, near Chartres, where we had carted manure, and where we renewed our acquaintance with Monsieur and Madame Dubosc. End of chapter 9